Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. A topic, so who likes candy apples? Anybody like candy apples? Two people? No? No? Is there a preference of the regular basic candy apple or versus like a, a caramel candy apple or do we have a preference? What is your preference? Caramel. Caramel? Uh, caramel, but we bought, my mom found a place that does like other kind of flavors. Alternative stuff, yeah. There's like a caramel apple pie one that was really good. Oh, man. I think like if we had butterscotch or something, I might could be on that. But I don't do the candy apples because it just jack, it gets all in my teeth. It's like, ugh. You know, I just prefer a regular apple, so no candy on it. Well, every year, we went to the Wayne County Fair last night, and we've been every year for like the past 12, 13, 14 years. But um, we started a tradition uh, years ago. And we, I say we've been every year except for the first year of COVID, 2020. We didn't go that year. I don't even know if they had the fair that year. Um, but in any case, uh, we started a tradition, I think, 12 years ago now where – I, it was 12 years ago, I randomly took a picture of my kid holding up the candy apple, and it was funny to me because I wanted her to, like, she was only four years old at the time, and I was trying to, but I was walking ahead of her like a dad does. I'm like, hey, take a picture, take a picture. And she, like, took her candy apple and held it up to me like this, like I'm going to punch you with this apple, you know. And it's such a funny little picture, and I took it. And for some reason, I got into the habit of taking a picture of my kids every year with the candy apple. And so last night we went to the fair again and we upheld the tradition. And I'm gonna show you the candy apple pics as just kind of a conversation starter. So this is that kid, this is Ava. And here's the first picture of her, uh, I guess 12 years ago now or so, 11 years ago. Um, that's her when she was four years old. And uh, you can see her holding that apple up like I'm gonna punch you, man. Quit, quit harassing me over the picture. But yeah, that's her at age four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. 11, 12, 13, and 14. And so uh, this is a neat little project I'm working on over a multi-year thing. But I started doing the, other, the same thing with my other kids. Uh, there's my middle kid, Bella, and uh, she is currently 12, so 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, and 2. Uh, but this worked for me, and this, is, uh, this kind of leads you to a business story. Um, I was trying to get a picture of her, and she was kind of, not really taking it seriously, and sometimes she's not into it. But I said something funny, and she like waved the apple at me like this, and I I got that picture, and it actually really worked. So you never know uh, what good unintended consequence you would get from trying other things. Um, and that's a picture of her. And then my son, this is his picture, and you can see his cheeks were rosy because it was cold last night, about 55 degrees out there. So that's him at six, five, four, three, two, one. And then had him up there just a few months old. And so, yeah, um, keep this going. But this is something neat that I've been doing over a couple of years, and I always enjoy sharing it with uh, the students. So maybe we'll see how it goes. I think when they're like 27, they'll be burnt out of doing that, though. They're like, Dad, really? Dude? I mean, come on. You know, I think the really cool picture, though, will be one day, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, when my kids have kids. And then I've got my, them holding my grandkid with the apple. I think that'll be totally, like, sick, you know. So, so this is a project I'm working on. Um, 
hoping to live for another 40 or 50 years and keep it going. So I think it would be neat, though, if I do live another 40 years, 50 years. Likewise, as my kids get older, enter their 30s, 40s, and 50s, if I can keep it going. So we'll see. I know it's totally cringy. I'm a cringy dad, so it's one of those things. All right. So anybody else have anything they want to talk about before we jump into uh, the next chapter, chapter 8? No? I did get some of your essays, and I printed, so I'll go ahead and talk about this. If you'll take a couple of these and pass them around. This is the essay assignment for number three, which is due in about two, three weeks, the 25th of October. For essay assignment number three, doing something a little bit different. We talked about SWOT analysis in here, right? Who remembers what SWOT analysis is? Yeah, what is it? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. There you go. And so for this assignment, we're basically going to do a basic SWOT analysis. And so you'll identify a company that's well-known. Don't do McDonald's because we did that in class, but something like Starbucks or Best Buy, whatever. Any company that as long as people can know what it's like so we can talk about it in class. Um, And then we're going to do a basic SWOT. So what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats? How can the company address its weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? Should include at least five attributes in each category. Um, If you use any articles, cite them on a works cited page. Be sure to include your name and course information on the paper. So same rubric as before. Um, You got some time on this. I want to remind you that we are not going to be in class next Tuesday. We'll be on fall break Monday and Tuesday next week, just as a reminder. So... Uh, any questions on this or comments? Do you, do you want it kind of like in the block form? You can do it in the block form. That's fine. I mean, you know, if you want to write it as a narrative, it can be three or 500 words. But if you want to actually do it as a block, that's fine too. Like if you just do a, like a quadrant, you know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. So other questions, good question. Uh, what do you mean by well-known by most people? So like if I say, I'm trying to think. If I say JoJo loves you, do you know what that is? Uh, most people wouldn't know what that is, but it's a jewelry company that my wife buys from. It's a small business. But if I say Foodline, a lot of people know what that is, right? So just try to pick a business that – the reason I want, I want everybody to be able to know what you're talking about, so when we talk about it in class, people can uh, have an understanding of that SWOT analysis and kind of uh, offer feedback on it. Because I want this to be a kind of a discussion assignment. So after we after we do it, we're going to talk about and share. So good question. Other questions, comments, if any? Okay. So chapter eight, we'll jump into that real quick. Structuring organizations for today's challenges. And the learning outcomes or objectives for chapter eight outline the basic principles of organizational management. Compare the organizational theories of Fayol and Weber. These are two um, figures that came, came about in the history of management. Um, evaluate the choices managers make in structuring organizations. Contrast the various organizational models. Identify the benefits of in, um, inter, inter-firm cooperation and coordination. And explain how organizational culture can help businesses adapt to change. So a lot of good content in this chapter. And so building an organization from the bottom up, you want to create a division of labor. Um, Before we had the Industrial Revolution, most laborers were what are known as generalists. 
meaning that people did a little bit of everything. Like if you worked on a farm, you could fix this, do that, do this, do that. And there was not a lot of specificity into your trade. You did a little bit of everything. But when we got into an industrialized age, we recognized that we needed to divide labor up into specialists. And so now, if the electricity goes out, we call an electrician, right? If the plumbing goes out, we call a plumber. And you can have generalists that do a little bit of everything, but what specificity or having a specialization does, it allows for you to become a master at that skill or that craft. And so um, dividing up labor that works very well within organizations because we can hire people that are very good at a specific skill set. And so when, um, if you look at JCC as an example, we have a bunch of different departments. When you need help with financial aid, you go to financial aid. <coughs> they should have all the information about that. When you need help with advising or admissions, those departments. If you want to go into nursing, you'll go talk to the health science folks. And each department is a specialty. They're, they're divi division of labor. <coughs> and they spend their time thinking about how can we better serve our students who are our customers uh, with the needs that they have. Divide tasks through job specializations. Set up teams or departments. This is called departmentalization, and we'll look at that throughout the chapter. Allocate resources. And so um, we've got, once again, a bunch of different departments on campus. Some of them are very capital intensive, <clears throat> meaning that like the business department per se doesn't necessarily have a ton of capital expenses, but we do have infrastructure needs. Like, as an example, right now we're working on replacing computers in our labs throughout this upstairs building, um, which is capitally intensive. There's a lot of money that goes into that. But in contrast, uh, another department in our division, the truck driver training uh, departments, um, logistics and transportation, they could spend a quarter million dollars on a truck or two. So that's very capital intensive. And as an organizational manager, um, the leadership has to decide how do we allocate the, the finite resources we have in order to make sure that we're taking care of uh, the things we need to take care of. And businesses have to do this as well. Businesses have a finite amount of resources. How do we uh, divide that up to make sure we're covering our bases? Assign specific tasks, establish procedures, develop an organizational chart, and adjust to new realities. And all of this has a subdivision that we'll go into as we dig deeper into the chapter. And so imagine you've begun a successful lawn mowing service in your neighborhood. Other lawn mowing services hire untrained workers for only minimum wage and do not provide safety equipment. You are interested in making as much money as possible, but you are also concerned about the safety and welfare of your workers. The corporate culture you create as you begin, um, begin your service will last a long time. Will you provide the safety equipment? What are the consequences of your, decision, your decisions? So what do you think about this? You want to be conscious of your, money, your profit, but you also want to be conscientious of the safety of your workers. And not only that, the customer's perception of your safety um, practices towards your workers. So what do you guys think? Opinions, thoughts? It only takes one accident to change your reality and how you think and feel about safety. It only takes like one rock flying and hitting somebody in the eye, they lose it in an eye, for it to change your whole reality. And not only, I mean, you could be negligent. You could be found negligent if you don't provide safety equipment. Now, if you provide safety goggles and that employee chooses not to wear them, you know, you have a, you, you've done your diligence to provide that. But 
it looks good if um, you hire people that are skilled, that can do the job quickly and do it efficiently, and that would wear the safety equipment because customers see that and they, they recognize. I mean, like, if I see something unsafe, it, it kind of makes me freak out a little bit. Like, my kids were on some of these rides last night, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I trust this 100%. You know, like, I might trust it 99, but I don't know about 100. So, you know, I, I look at some of this, and I, th- and I have a risk aversion thing going off in my brain. And so if I look at somebody doing an unsafe work practice, there's this this thing within me that makes me want to say, hey, shouldn't that person be wearing some safety gear? You know, they could get hurt. Something should, something should be done about that. So um, evolving business environments. So there is more global competition. And it's there's a great book called The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. I read it years ago. And we, we can hardly, like, perceive just how fast the world is changing around us because we only have a worldview that's based right here in Johnson County, North Carolina. But what's happening around the globe is that the Internet has leveled the playing field. People that are on the other side of the earth can now compete with labor in the United States because they have a dial-up or an Internet connection, and they can, they can offer goods and services at a cheaper rate all the way on the other side of the earth. And so that is a just remarkable thing that has happened in such a short amount of time that has caused a tremendous disruption. Declining economy. Um, faster technological change, that's another one. Has anybody ever studied, studied uh, quantum computing or artificial intelligence? We sh- I showed a video on how AI is gonna disrupt job markets. Did you guys watch that in here? The Alux, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, quantum computing, uh, even people that study this can't hardly get their head wrapped around it. And it's, it's insane to think about, like, the way a regular computer processes is through ones and zeros, yeses and nos, right? Quantum processes thousands, if not millions, of uh, decisions instantly, like at the same time. It's doing multiple transactions at the same time, and, and it's going to just really change the way everything uh, works on Earth. So it's, it's fascinating and what the next decade or two is going to hold for technology. And the technology curve is like this. So over, you know... Thousands of years, mankind, you know, we've got technological development. You've got, you got the wheel, you've got tools and stuff. But then as we develop technology, that curve just goes straight up, the adoption curve, the development curve. And so as we get new and new, new and new technology, it allows us to create newer technologies more quickly. So pressure to protect the environment. So changing customer expectations. This is another one. Uh, customers don't always want the same things over and over again. Their, their change taste, uh, their, their taste change, I'm sorry. And so with that, you've got to be adaptable. High quality products with fast, friendly service and all at a low cost. Yeah, customers want their cake and eat it, to, and to be able to eat it too, right? And so um, that's a conundrum, you know, like they want high quality stuff, they want great service, but they want low cost, but that doesn't always go hand in hand, you know, so, um, like we talk about the subway example in here. So subway to me is low quality and I guess low cost. But if you go to a Jersey Mike's or a firehouse sub, I think it's a higher quality sandwich, but it's also a higher cost. And so there is this cost benefit we look at with these things. And so how much change in a decade or two, and this is just to show you over 20 years what what happens. Amount of mobile phone use, 34% of the public in 2000, 2010, it was 89%, and now at 2020, 95%. Number of active blogs, it, only 12,000. <laughs> that's, 
That's pretty crazy. And then it went to 141 million, and now it's 600 million. Amount of reality shows, four to 320 to 750. Daily emails sent, 12 billion to 247 billion to 265 billion. Number of hours spent online per week, wow, 2.7 to 18 to 24. We spend one day a week online. That's crazy. Number of email, of daily newspapers, I'm sorry. Uh, this is uh, in circulation. We've got seen decline of this, 1480 to 1302 to 1186. Number of daily letters mailed, seen decline of this, $207 to $175 So we've had an uptick on that last metric. Amount of books published, uh, we're seeing an uptick in this, 282000 roughly, to 1.05 million to 1.68 million. iTunes downloads, zero in 2000, to 10 billion in 2010, to 300 billion. Do you guys pay for music? Does anybody buy music? Yeah, I don't, there's an iTunes store, but when I go in there, I see music that you can buy, but I'm like, why, would, why don't anybody buy music? I guess if you don't want to subscribe to iTunes, I guess, but what do you guys use? Do you use iTunes, Spotify, YouTube? What do you guys use? Spotify? Do you pay for your service or do you use a free service? Uh, I have a student, so I pay cheaper for the same thing. What's what's what is it rate on that? Uh, I don't remember, uh, but it was like, I think it was like a ten percent okay. discount on it, and plus I got like four months free. Okay, so um, do you use a paid service or a free service? I think so. I think my Spotify's free. Free, okay, but the only difference is like you don't just have as much control over what you listen to. Is that correct? Yeah, and it gives. I, I can download music. Okay, so, very like, cool. That reminded me of a time like 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know if anybody remembers LimeWire. I do remember LimeWire. Yeah. I use LimeWire. Did you ever use it? Uh, no, but I have no friends who have used it. Yeah, Napster was the big one that yeah. came out. And then there was a lot of copycats like Grokster and LimeWire. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was a ton of music out there in the early, God, what year was this? I guess early 2000s, yeah. somewhere yeah. there, yeah. Um. So, percentage of obese Americans, there's a shift there, 26 to 34 to 40. And so, these are interesting trend lines that we see. And each one of these trend lines can tell us something about where business is going. So, we know business is going mobile. That's the obvious, you know. Um, we know information is growing at an, like an enormous rate. Uh, and people are obviously interested in reality TV. So there's just a ton of inter- like of juice here that can be extracted uh, to how you can shape a business around where the public is heading. And so the de- de- development of organizational design, mass production of goods led to complexities in organizing businesses. The economies of scale, companies can reduce their production costs by purchasing raw materials in bulk. The average cost of goods decreased as production levels rise. Two influential thinkers emerged, Henry Fayol and Max Weber. And so Fayol's principles of organization have a unity of command. This is very important. Like if the, the top person in the organization says something, every other leadership person in that organization needs to say the exact same thing. Like there needs to be a unified front. Nobody needs to dissent. Nobody needs to go against the grain. It all needs to be we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And that gives a feeling of consistency for the employees and the customers. We're unified in our approach and what we're doing. 
hierarchy of authority. And people respond really well. And Fail uh, said that we should, it was either Fail or Weber, I think it was Weber, said that uh, people should just have one supervisor they report to. Don't have more than one because it creates complications. Uh, in some instances, we do have these dotted lines, but for the most part, you should have one supervisor that you report to. Division of labor, um, once again, we specialize into what we do. Subordination of individual interest into to the general interest, meaning that we set aside our personal interests in order to support the interests of the organization or the whole. Authority, meaning that people should respect I guess I'm doing a South Park quote there, respect authority. But, uh, but in seriousness, respect authority and respond when asked to do something. Degree of centralization, the bigger the organization, the more centralized it needs to be. Meaning that uh, you see big organizations like Walmart, McDonald's, Starbucks, they have a high degree of centralization, meaning their messaging is controlled. But if it's a small company, it's usually de more decentralized. Yes, sir. Yeah. And she was saying that they're actually in the process of re-centralizing the whole business because, you know, Citibank has their hands in everything. Yes. But uh, she, she's saying how, like, because she's a vice president of some, I don't know. It's sure. Hard, I, it's a long title. But she, like, does a risk management for the credit card section, but they're completely re-centralizing because they got too, like, disorganized. And sure. Like top, the head brass kind of is getting confused on what was going on. Right. Yeah. There's pros and cons to every approach. You know, if you're highly centralized, you get more consistency, but you get less flexibility. And you can't respond as quickly because if the, if the central command has to sign off on everything, it makes it difficult to respond to local markets. You know, so if you know we could do something that will work very well over here, it's hard to make that adjustment because you have to get permission from a central authority. But if you're decentralized and you say, hey, we can make this change over here and it'd be very beneficial to us, and I don't have to get somebody over here to sign off on it, that makes it very nimble and easy to respond. And that's the advantage small business has over big business because they can be nimble and respond to customers' needs more quickly. Like if you're a small business, you can make a change just like that. But if you're a big business, it may go against a company protocol or rule or regulation that we can't do this, you know. And Walmart, I, like I said, I worked there five years, very highly centralized. And sometimes we have to call Bentonville, Arkansas home office to get permission to do something, you know. And so, yeah, that, that degree of centralization is, can be a strength, but can also be a weakness. Um, clear communication channels. I can't stress that enough. Um, I have, like I said, in my practice... I send out a, day, a weekly email that pretty much puts everything on the table that we're doing, that we're working on, and I, of, I often ask for feedback. Tell me what you, what you need. Tell me what you want. Um, give me feedback on this thing, and uh, I feel like the team I have around me now likes that. They give me good feedback on liking the transparency. Order, I mean, it's not chaotic. Everybody, you should have an expectation of what a shift is going to look like at work. You should, even if it's going to be busy, it still should be organized, not chaos, but organized in a way that you can have a good outcome. Equity, people are treated fairly, no favorites, no teacher's pets, uh, no buddy-buddy, you know, that kind of stuff. If, if there is a whiff of inequity, it is toxic because, um, give you an example, let's say that everybody shows up at this time, 
but the boss knows that Susie's going to be late, and Susie's always late, and everybody knows Susie's late, and Susie gets away with being late because she's the boss's favorite. Well, that creates disgruntled employees for everybody else. That creates an inequity, an imbalance. Why should I have to be here at this time when this person gets to come in 30 minutes an hour late and still get paid for it? So when I come in, I'm just going to do this and wait for Susie to come in, you know. And there's, there's, this, there's this inequity. They have to actually study this quite a bit. And they did an experiment where they, they, in this experiment, they offered to pay one person more than everybody else. So let's say that they say, we're going to pay you $2 more per hour than everybody in the room. And you feel highly motivated because you get two more dollars than everybody else. And so your motivation scale is a little bit above everybody else. But then they take that same experiment and say, we made a mistake. We actually meant to pay you $2 less than everybody else. And so, like, if you feel a little bit more motivated than everybody else making $2 more, your, your demotivation goes way down here when you find out you're making $2 less. So that inequity or that perception of inequity really messes with people's uh, motivation and, and perception. So, uh, and then Spirit de Corp, meaning the spirit of the company, um, you want to make sure that uh, you're doing things in the best interest of the organization. So there's some, some additional information about FAIL. Characteristics of organizations based on the principles. Employees have no more than one boss. A line of authority, lines of authority are clear. Rigid organizations are often, that often don't respond to customers quickly. So that's when we have highly centralized uh, organizations. So here's a shot of FAIL, handsome looking fella. Ha! Henry Fayol introduced several management principles still followed today, including the idea that each worker should report to only one manager and that managers, in turn, should have the right to give orders for others to follow and the power to enforce them. So which of Fayol's principles have you observed? I'm sure you've observed the idea of one manager, correct? And the idea that a manager should have some authority. But here's this is old school management. We're teaching you this old school management I'm going to teach you the new school, is that even though as a manager you have a certain amount of authority, you shouldn't flex it or show it like directly. You should ask people to help, not tell people to help. Like, you know, like I, I, instead of saying, hey, guys, you will do this or else, that doesn't, that doesn't fly. People don't respond well to that. You know, people start looking for the door. A better approach is, guys, I need some help with this. Do you think you could help me with this? Or... If you were doing this, how would you approach this? Or what do you think would be a good approach to help get this done the best way possible? Or can we get together and figure out how to help each other to make this happen? This idea of participative leadership versus authoritative, me telling you how to do things. Uh, people, especially modern workers, do not respond well to being, put, being pushed around and told what to do. And the surprising thing to me is that managers still do that. like. I've heard examples in this room of managers that boss people around, and it's just such a terrible approach. People don't respond well to it. I don't know why they think that's a good approach. It's, it's better to try to get. Now, I will say, I will qualify my statement to say, some people have to be told. There's, there's a spectrum of workers that some workers respond well to being completely autonomous. They do their thing. They do it well. There's people in the middle that need a blend of freedom, autonomy, and being directed. And then there's people on the other end that, need to be told what to do. And if you're, if you're working with people that need that type of supervision and direction all the time, you need to like find somebody else. You know, they need to find work somewhere else because that's not the kind of employees that I want on my team where I have to constantly 
direct them all the time. So that did it by itself, by the way. So um, questions or comments about fail? All right. So Weber is the other guy we talked about. And employees just need to do what they're told. In addition to fails principle, Weber emphasized job descriptions. And has anybody ever had a job description? Yeah? Couple? So a job description basically gives you a one to two page summary of what your position entails. And usually at the end of every job description, there's this statement that says, yeah, your job is to do whatever we need you to do, basically. And other duties and, assigned. And, and other duties as assigned by the organization, <coughs> correct. So it's kind of a big gray area there at the bottom, you know, so which is your job is this, but it can change at any time and we can, we can create new stuff for you. But it just, it's meant to be a guiding, you know, a guidepost to give you some boundaries as to this is what you'll be doing. And it's important that you understand what the job description is, and it's important that you have your employees understand what the job description is because I have found myself with a mismatch of job descriptions. Give you an example. The first full-time teaching job I took, I thought my job was to teach. And my job was to teach, but it was also to advise to help students register, to do all the administrative stuff on the back end, to participate in committee work, to do um, other like uh, events that were on the weekends or nights. So there was a lot of other things involved in the job beyond teaching that I really didn't get a grasp on until my first like, half year, year into it. You know, I really, I, I spent that first semester just focusing on teaching, but there was all these other things I needed to focus on. And after I'd done it for a few years, I realized Teaching is probably only 25% of my job. The other big chunk of it is administrating, helping students with advising, and all that other stuff. So once again, make sure that you have a crystal clear understanding of what you're getting into when you're going to get a job, not just what you think it might be. And how do you think a good way would be to figure out what a job might be? Like if you're going to say, I want to get a job, I want to do this, what do you think a good strategy would be to discover what's involved in that job? Yes. Intern or shadow somebody. Intern or shadow, yeah. Ask questions. Say, hey, I see you do this job. Tell me what your typical day's like. That's a great question, you know, and, and they can tell you, oh, don't go into this industry. I would rather know by somebody saying don't go into this industry on the front end. When I was 15 years old, I went to this camp, summer camp called the National Youth Leadership Formal Medicine. It cost $1,500 to go. My parents sent me. And it was a one-week crash course in what it's like to be a medical doctor. I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. And so I went to this camp, Washington, D.C. We went to Georgetown University, went to Johns Hopkins. We had a panels of doctors. We watched a week-long documentary in sections. And the documentary was like a reality TV show uh, where it showed what, a, what the doctor process was like from getting into medical school, going through medical school, going into residency, and then post-residency. Post and... Honestly, after going to that, you know what I said? To, the first thing I said to my parents when they picked me up, and they said, how was it? They were all excited, you know, 1500 bucks. I said, I don't want to, I said, I don't want to do this. You know, it's like, this talked me out of doing it. And my parents were more, they were like shocked. They were like, they, they just expected me to say something else. You know, they thought I'd be excited. But it was $1,500, but it was cheap to learn that lesson that I didn't want to do that. Because what if I had, put all my academic energy into going to pre-med, got, you know, got to the med school thing, or there's, there's people that go into med school and drop out all the time. There's people that graduate med school and don't go on to be physicians. That happens. 
And I just know I'm not cut out to be a medical doctor. It's just not something that, that, that I don't have that bone in my body that, that says this is what I'm supposed to do. And so you want to find out what it's like to do that career type before you dive into it. And so talk to people in that career. Like, if you want to be a stockbroker, why don't you go talk to a stockbroker, take them out to lunch and say, tell me about your job. You know, t- what do you like? What don't you like? If you had to do it all over again, would you do this? And <clears throat> see what they say. You know, you want to hear it. Yes, sir. One of my dad's buddies is one of his customers. My dad's a landscaper. Sure. He's actually a stockbroker okay. in Florida. And he said, bro, it's one of the greatest jobs. As long as you know how to talk to people, you're good. Okay. And he works from home and he makes really good money. Yeah, sure. That's what I was looking into being a stockbroker. Yeah. I like investments. I like finance. But... Uh, I've somehow led, got, got going towards education, so here I am, you know. But and if you lose someone's finances, then you're responsible. Well, I could see how it could be a very stressful job, especially when the market's down, because you're having to hear, you know, you know, your clients are going to be giving you a hard time about it. So, do you have a comment? Yes, sir. Uh, so, my uncle and my grandfather, well, my grandfather's been in steel, like working in the business aspect of it. Sure. Since he graduated college. And so, my family, like, uh, my uncle and then my other uncle, Went all both went into the steel business with them, and my granddad helped me do it. And I'm, I've been thinking of going into it as well. Sure. Just because my uncle's going to get ownership of the business once the current owner retires. And so I just go in and I work under my uncle. And they like they seem to make good money. They're not yeah. like overly stressed with work. That's, that's such an important thing, you know, because um, I, I forgot who I was talking to recently, but. It was, um, they, they were in, not in a career field they studied. They studied something else, and they went to a separate career field. And somebody was asking me when we were talking about this person, and I said, you know, it's not always about the money. It's, um, sometimes it's about the quality of life. And that's, that's the answer for me, because I took a pay cut originally to go from uh, retail to education, about 10 grand. I mean, that's a major pay cut. But the quality of life, I, have, I had zero regrets from day one. Because my peace of mind, I slept better at night. I had more time at home with my family, way less stress. And I, had, I enjoyed what I did. So, um, yeah, at a certain point, you realize, you know, I mean, money's great, but it's not everything. It just isn't. I mean, like, um, everybody wants to be a millionaire. That's great. Noble goal. That's wonderful. But quality of life is the big picture. I mean, because um, if you look, if you do an analysis of rich people and poor people, they both have similar struggles, you know, it's just on a different scale. Uh, they both have personal, emotional, psychological struggles they deal with, you know, things they're going through. Uh, and so you just can't escape that human experience, you know. And so uh, it is better to have some means. You know, I don't disagree with that. But at the end of the day, point being is you should do something that makes you happy, you know. And that's the advice I'm giving my kids is, like, do something that makes you happy as long as it has a good paycheck. So, um, so we talked about job descriptions, written rules, decision guidelines, and detailed records. What do you think it means by decision guidelines? What do you think that means? And so after you work somewhere for a while, you should know what the rules are for the company. And when something happens, you should also must be able to predict the outcome based on the guidance. What do you think? So like if, I know at Dairy Queen, we have signs posted everywhere. Sure. But it's like some of them are just like... If this happens, try these steps. Sure. And, if, and after a while, you kind of just memorize the steps. So right. if a customer starts 
<coughs> complaining about something you just learned, okay, I, I can either de-escalate it from here, but if it's gotten too out of hand, I instantly go get a manager. Sure. I ask, hey, tell them exactly what it was about your own personal opinion. Right. And then they can go handle it, and you just go back to work. I mean, like, I don't understand why companies just don't get in their mind to go ahead and do what it takes to make the customer happy every time. Because, number one, uh, most customers don't complain. They, you know, that's, it's a rare thing to have the customer complain unless there's just a lot of major problems with the company. But um, at Walmart, like, they told us, you know, if it's something we don't want to take back, we're, we'll just kind of resist. But then the customer would always say, then the customer gets mad and they say, satisfaction guaranteed, I'm not satisfied. And then they're going to escalate to the store manager, the district manager, regional manager, home office, whatever. And so I started adapting and just saying, look, I'm just going to fix this. And, you know, because if it goes over my head, they're just going to tell me to fix it anyway. So just go ahead and deal with the problem in front of you and fix it. So, yeah, but decision guidelines gives you some guidance as to how you should operate. And you should know what an expected outcome is. Like, I love companies where... Um, when I call them, they just fix the problem, whatever it is, you know, like I told you about my Builder Bear story, right? Where um, I bought something and I was supposed to get a gift card with the purchase, but it wasn't there. And so I emailed them and then they give me an email back, oh, we can't fix this. And I'm like, really, you can't fix this? So I, I emailed them back saying that's really unfortunate because I, I feel like I've been ripped off a couple times by you guys. And being honest, and they hit me back saying, oh, by the way, we will fix this and here you go, here's your, they gave me a free gift card, and I was like, I didn't want a free gift card. I just wanted you to fix the problem, but anyway. But another time I had Lego, they fixed it instantly. I told you about that. So consistent procedures, regulations, and policies. Consistent is a key word. Uh, you want to have people to know basically what you're going to do because you're consistent. You're going to follow the rules every time. Be consistent. Staffing and promotion based on qualifications, not buddy-buddy, not because it's your friend, not because it's your favorite, based on somebody that's a performer is doing well. So this is the other guy, Weber. Um, Max Weber promoted an organizational structure composed of middle managers who implemented the orders of top managers. He believed less educated workers were best managed if supervisors gave them strict rules and regulations to follow and monitored their performance. What industries or businesses today would benefit from using such controls? What do you think? Any ideas? It's subjective. Factory work. work, yeah. Other ideas, if any? Anything that deals with processes, you know, just do this, then do this, then do this. Um, what's that? Yeah, anything like that. Yeah, that's very process oriented. Yeah. So, um, but I, this is just once again a shift in the way the world works. Um, <laughs> We have to get, in, even today, we have to get past this idea of formal education and education in general. Like, we place a lot of emphasis on pieces of paper that validate people's knowledge and education, but I believe that the world is gonna change in the very near future where um, credentials that you earn that may not necessarily come through an academic institution will be just as valid in the workplace. Like, there's a lot of this type of stuff popping up where students can get credentials and just for things that they've done online and they have merit in the workplace. And so um, I, don't want, I don't want there to always be this elitism with, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I believe in academia, I believe in education, but there's so many educational opportunities. Like you can go on YouTube and learn how to do something now. And that's, that's the kind of stuff I'm getting at. So you shouldn't 
I'll, I'll leave value a piece of paper that says they went through these classes. There's other educational out, outcomes out there. So. substitute for Absolutely. Well, the paradigm has shifted in my lifetime. When I was in high school, it was go get that piece of paper, go get that four-year degree, you'll have a great job. The paradigm has shifted now to the market is demanding people that can do things. It's not what you know, it's what you can do. What's up? Uh, well, my mom never went to college. My dad never did either. She just went straight to the workforce, yeah. and she's been with City since she was working as a cell phone operator. Sure. But now she is a manager of people. Sure. And those people are managers of more people. Right. And she, those people under her, she's like, they've been to college. Right. I, I know some of them have, and I know some of them are mad that they went to college and I didn't, and I'm in charge. Sure. But she's like, I think my benefit is I worked with people who also didn't go to college or who did go to college, and I've just learned how to work with people rather than I learned how to do my job. Sure. Well, a like, per, like when you're on the job, it's a combination of education and experience. And after a certain point, that education counts just as much as, or the experience counts just as much as education. I will say education can give you, uh, it, it can get you in the door faster. As an example, when I graduated, I had two bachelor's degrees. I had zero experience in retail, but that allowed me to get in the door to interview at Walmart. And I became assistant manager with no experience, and they just hired me based on my educational credentials. But that was a challenge, and, I was just, and it was almost the opposite of what your mom went through because I had people with 20 years' experience, no education, uh, or, no, or no formal education, but they had the experience. And here I am, their supervisor now. The military has the same conundrum where they'll have lieutenants come out with bachelor's degrees. They have very little military experience, but they're officers, and now they actually outrank enlisted soldiers that have been there for 15, 20, 25 years, but they better believe that they better listen to that, that master sergeant or whoever that enlisted uh, leader is, you know, because otherwise they're going to be in bad shape, you know. So they have to commit. Those, those enlisted soldiers that have been there for 20 years command a lot of respect. And you can't just come in there and boss them around. Even though you outrank them, you still have to respect their experience. And so at the end of the day, experience and what you can do outranks education. It just does, you know. But education is important. I, I don't want to, you know, I, there's a... There's a lot of things that, um, if, if I look at somebody that didn't decide to go that educational path, there are learning opportunities they missed. You know, they just did. I mean, like I went to a liberal arts college, Mount Olive College, and we study a bunch of different disciplines, psychology, sociology, religion. And um, my worldview has been shaped by those experiences that other people that didn't go through those experiences, they don't have that, that perspective. So... Um, I think you need both. I really do. So, and, but it depends on what your what your goals are in life too. So, um, <clears throat> so turning principles into organizational design. When following Fayo and Weber, managers controlled workers. There is this hierarchy, a system in which one person is at the top of an organization, and there is a ranked or sequential ordering from the top down. Many organizations fall into a hierarchy. The military does. Colleges do. A lot of businesses do. A chain of command is the line of authority that moves from the top of the hierarchy to the lowest level. And ideally, it's supposed to be a single line straight up and down where a boss tells his, his like immediate manager what to do, and that manager communicates to the employee, and the employee communicates to the customer, and then it goes back up. But sometimes those chains are skipped. Uh, but even in 
this institution and other educational institutions, I've seen presidents that respect that uh, that chain of command and will say, say if student, let's say Brian has a complaint with me, and instead of talking to me about it, he goes straight to the president. Well, what the president of this college is going to say is, have you talked to your instructor about it? And if Brian says no, the president will say, well, go talk to your instructor about it. And if you don't like what the instructor says, then go talk to the instructor's boss about it. And if you don't like what they have to say, then go talk to the boss's boss. And then maybe it'll come back to me. But between myself, my boss, their boss, something's we're going to resolve whatever issue you have, you know. So respecting that chain of command is really the appropriate way to go about uh, dealing with things. And then an organizational chart is a visual, visual device that shows relationships amongst people and divides the organization's work. It shows who reports to whom. <clears throat> it's important to take time, even before you start an organization, to study their organizational chart and know how this thing is chopped up. We have an organizational chart on the JCC website that's probably 30 pages long. It breaks, have you ever looked at it, Shane? Uh, Occasionally. Uh, I've seen the emails. Yeah, it breaks down like, like when you look at the, pr the big one, the, the primary one, it'll have the president, the board of trustees, the vice presidents, and the associate VPs. And then under each one of those, it'll show, show continued on this page, and then it'll just continue to break down this organization. So it's a pretty big hierarchy uh, when you look at it. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, rest my voice for a second, and then we'll come right back. All right, jumping back in for just a few more minutes. Uh, this is an example of a typical organizational chart. And you can see it's, it's relatively flat, meaning there's not a ton of layers. But we've got the president at the top, couple different managers over different divisions or departments. You've got production, marketing, and finance. And then you've got these first-line supervisors who are all have their own group of individuals that they supervise. And they're all working on different aspects of the organization. So like in marketing, you might have three different um, venues that they're working on. Some people are working on TV ads. Some people can be working on social media. Other people can be working on print. And they're all kind of working together as a department, but they have different focuses they're working on. And so turning principles into organizational design continued. Bureaucracy, an organization with many layers of managers who set rules and regulations and oversee all decisions. It can take weeks or months for inf information to pass down to lower level employees. Bureaucracies can annoy customers. Some companies are reorganizing to let employees make decisions to please customers. Yeah. Um, I like transparency. I don't like there to be information that's withheld. Um, in my experience, when information that's withheld, unless there's a really good reason to, reason to withhold it, it just creates distrust. Like if I say, I've got something to tell you guys, but I don't tell you, but you guys know there's something there and I just never mention it, you automatically start to be suspicious. Like, what's this, what's this guy? What's his deal? You know, what's he doing? And it just creates this, 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 this barrier between, you know, your trust level with that individual and that organization. So you want to be as transparent as you can be to let people know what's going on. Um, centralized authority versus decentralized. Centralized authority is when decision-making authority is maintained at the top level of management at the company's headquarters. It can limit the flexibility to immediately respond to regional or local market changes and trends. And let me emphasize that, limit the flexibility. So when you have a highly centralized company, organizations are very inflexible. They have to, they like, that's company policy, we do this. Company policy, we do this. And the customers don't like that. I, I don't like that you can't 
make something happen for me, the customer. Decentralized authority is when decision-making authority is delegated to lower-level managers more familiar with local conditions than headquarters management could be. Um, we used to have, um, I hate to keep pulling on the Walmart example, but they would send us floor plans for our Christmas shop, which should be getting put up now at different Walmarts across the country. But it would be a floor plan that they designed and they pushed out to us, but it just did not match our floor plan. Like they would create this Christmas shop playbook and how it's supposed to look and all this stuff. But our way our floor plan was, it just did not match it. So we had to adapt our floor plan to that. And on occasion, a district manager or regional manager would come through and look at it, and they would immediately say, that doesn't match the floor plan, or you know, it's not in compliance with the floor plan or something. And we had to you know, jump through hoops to get it as best we could adapted to what they were looking for. But that's, that, that really is a barrier to performance. So each one of these has advantages and disadvantages. And you have to understand um, that flexibility is a good thing, but you have a less consistent approach. And the centralized means more consistency but less fle flexibility. So here we go. We're getting to the advantages and disadvantages. So centralized advantage is greater top management control, more efficiency, simpler distribution system, and stronger brand corporate image. Um, the disadvantage of centralized is less responsiveness to customers, less empowerment. Yeah, we're telling you what to do. We're not letting you decide what you're going to do. Um, Inter-organizational conflict and lower morale away from headquarters. So the uh, decentralized advantages are better adaptation to customer wants, more empowerment of workers, faster decision-making, higher morale. Disadvantages for decentralized include less efficiency, complex distribution systems, less top management control, weakened corporate image. And so got several advantages and disadvantages here, centralized versus decentralized. Keep in mind that um, it's on a spectrum, and the more you move towards one, uh, you're going to have advantages of that, but some of the disadvantages that also come with it. So span of control is the optimum number of subordinates a manager super or supervisor should uh, supervise. How many people do you think you can effectively supervise? Just subjective. There's not a correct answer, but what do you think? Around 8 to 10. 8 to 10, what do you think? Anybody else have a different number? What do you think? I don't know, like the 4 to 5 that Derek and run off? 4 to 5? Do you think you can effectively manage 50 people? No. I don't think so either. It's too many to keep an eye on. How about 40? Still too many? How about 25? If you're good at job. Maybe. Maybe, but that's, to me, it depends on where one the job. Where they're at and what they're doing. They are, yeah. They're like if they're all in this room right. and you're just walking around looking at what they're doing in this room, maybe. But if they're spread out, that's hard, you know. Um, there is no, like, hard and fast rule in this, but somewhere between 5 and 15. Um, look at military squads. You have to, like, I keep referencing the military because there's a lot of correlation between military, like, strategy and business strategy, but, like, how they manage their organization. But, like, a military squad might have four to six people in it. They have a squad leader. And that squad leader, like, has that four to six that they're directly supervising. And then, um, I don't know, what a patrol might have three or four squads. So you've got basically 20 people in four squads that has a patrol leader that directs those squad leaders what to do, you know. And then that, that 
patrol might be a part of a battalion that's got hundreds or more in it, you know, and that battalion might have a colonel that's directing all these patrol leaders that are directing squad leaders, and you have a hierarchy that ha- that, that works just like that. So they might send three patrols over there, and those patrols might fan out to have a flank position and know what they're supposed to do on the battlefield. Same thing's true in business. I mean, you have these different squads or groups, departments that have a strategic function and the colonel, the general, the president, whatever title you want to have, the leader in charge gives direction as to what they're supposed to be working on to accomplish a common good or common goal. So yes, span of control, five to 15 is a good number, but it can, it really depends on the circumstance. When work is standardized, broad spans of control are possible, meaning that uh, I went on a tour of Minoff Pickle Factory some years ago, and it's really fascinating. I think I probably mentioned them before. It was a great experience to watch. Do you guys eat pickles, by the way? You eat pickles, yeah. Minoff pickles, you like them? Or you like the kosher pickles, like the Vlasics? What do you like? I just like pickles. I eat pickles. So, but so if you um, if you go if you go walk, do a tour of Mouth Pickle, I had no idea this happens. But they hand stuff the pickle jars with the spears. I th- I thought it was all be machines, right? They've got people working on a line that are hand stuffing these jars, and they're like magicians doing this. They take the pickles and they have them in their hand, and they just kind of like spread them around the jar so the seat side faces out really quickly and they do it so fast and they get these bunches of four or five jars and that's a set and then they put that set up and the bead counter will slide a bead over on their accounts and they get credit for all these different sets they make and that increases their pay so they get paid a per hourly rate but they also get a paid piece rate so their overall pay is a combination of those two factors hours and sets and um, you have probably something in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 people doing jars at the same time. It's just really quick, a lot of action. And there's only like one counter on each side. And so that one supervisor is, is looking at 20 people, you know, but they're all right there in a small space, you know, just all going. Pretty fascinating to look at. Um, the appropriate span narrows at high levels of organization, meaning that if we have a, a mission critical, we're, we're, we've got a important job that, that we're doing at a high level. We probably need less people that we're supervising. <laughs> the trend today is to rescue middle managers and hire better low-level employees. I'm sorry, reduce, not rescue. Reduce middle managers and hire better low-level employees. Um, that's ideal, not always able to do that. Tall organizational structures is an organization structure in which the pyramid, uh, pyramidal organization chart would be quite tall because of the various levels of management. And it really depends on uh, how big your organization gets and uh, how many people are in it. You do need a certain amount of managers because if you're keeping within that 5 to 15 number, you got to have supervisors to supervise that. Like right now, my boss, Brian, he's the associate vice president. He has <clears throat> two department chairs. My department has about 10 people in it, so that's my span of control. Maxie Kirby is the other department chair. He has about 20 people in his, well, 15 to 20 people in his department. That's his span of control. Um, but if we added another five or 10 people, it would be getting a little tight. You know, we might need another manager in there at some point <coughs> to keep an eye on folks. Because if we didn't have myself or Maxie, what would happen is 
Brian would be supervising approximately 30 people, and that's 30 people coming to him with problems and questions and comments. And so that's two minutes per hour he can devote to one, each one of those people. That's the mean, you know, so in a given day, eight-hour day, you get 16 minutes, how you want to use it, you know. And so it's very limited amount of time that you can devote to individual employees when your span gets too big. Flat organizational structures, an organizational structure that has few layers of management and is, has a broad span of control. And once again, it, it's really a function of what you're doing. Like, if you're in a, a situation where you can see your people in a very close proximity and they're not doing very complicated work, you could probably supervise more than 15, 20, 30 people. But if, if they're doing some work that requires a lot of input for management uh, and they're spread out a little bit, then your span of control needs to shrink a little bit. You've got too much that you're trying to keep your eye on. And so this is a flat organizational example. Most organizations start out flats. You've got an owner, operator, manager, and has a one layer of direct reports. As this organization grows, um, what typically happens, let's use a franchise model. Let's say this guy just started a franchise. They sell hamburgers. Well, let's say that we want to open a second franchise. So they'll duplicate this and have two of those, but the owner is in between them. So now we have three layers, owner, two operators, and then frontline workers. But the more we do that, the owner can't keep going to all these different places. So now the owner has to hire a district manager for like two of them to spread out amongst these different locations they've got. So now you might have two district managers that oversee five stores and then that owner that's above the district managers. And so we just, as we expand, we have to keep adding layers of management because you can only realistically keep up with so much. You know, At Walmart, when I first got there, a district manager was responsible for about seven, eight stores. They expanded to 10 to 12. Um, but even 10 to 12 is a lot. I mean, these are $100 million super centers. And so to go to all 10 of them or 12 of them in a month's time to keep up with them, that's, that's a lot to, to do, to keep up with. And each one of them has, you know, two to 300 employees, a lot of liability, a lot of issues to keep up with. So, all right, any questions on tall and flat organizations? So most organizations do start off flat. They get taller over time, hopefully. So some advantages and disadvantages for broad and narrow. An advantage for broad is it reduces cost, more responsiveness to customers, faster decision-making, and more empowerment. The disadvantage is being few chances for advancements. If there's not layers of management, where do you go? You know, like if, if it's just the owner, boss, and me, well, how am I going to get promoted? We're going to have to expand for me to get promoted. So that, that creates a challenge, you know, ceiling for you. Uh, overworks managers, loss of control, less management expertise. Narrow means, uh, some advantages means you have more control by top management, more chances for advancement, greater specialization, closer supervision. Disadvantages means less empowerment because it's more centralized, higher costs, delayed decision-making, less responsiveness to customers. And so the interesting thing on this span of control and uh, decentralized versus centralized is that they both have advantages and disadvantages. Some of it is a function of where that business is at that time. I mean, it just, it's naturally occurring. It's a phenomenon that you don't always have control over. Um, meaning that if you say you start out that, that hamburger joint, it's a sole proprietor, but as you grow into an <coughs> empire, you become a Burger King or a Red Robin or a McDonald's, 
you have to centralize. You don't have a choice because you have to have a consistent way to operate this business. And without that, it goes to chaos. And so that is just a function of the natural evolution of a business. So you don't always have a decision on how that's going to work. It, it forces you to be more controlling, more centralized. And so we've already talked about departmentalization today a little bit. It's the dividing of organizational functions into separate units. Workers are grouped by skill and expertise to specialize their skills. And it works really well if you can hire people in a skill area that they want to be in. And so if somebody is very good at doing accounting and paperwork, why in the world would you have them, you know, digging ditches or flipping burgers? You need to hire people that are good at that skill set that they're being hired for. Some people, like, they go into a job thinking, I'm just going to get a job, and they don't always put the math together that maybe this isn't my passion or maybe this isn't my skill set. It's just a job. And, and you find that a lot of people work jobs they don't like. And so that leads to bad outcomes for them and for the company because if you're not happy with what you do, if you're not intrinsically motivated, if you're there just to get a paycheck, you find that tendency to go back down to that 70th percentile where you do just enough to not get fired but not more than you have to do. That's where a lot of people hang out, that C average, that 70th percentile. And so you want to identify with work that you like, that you care about, and that you're interested in so you keep coming back to it. Um, if you've ever talked to people who really like the work they do, they just sound different. Um, they just they act different. They sound different. They have this positivity in their voice because they're not drowned down by the mundane activity of the work they do. They go to work excited. They come home. They, they're inspired by the work they did. So try to find things uh, that you align and try to hire people in the future that can be in alignment with that. So advantages. Employees develop skills and progress within the department as they master skills. The company can achieve economies of scale, meaning they're doing things more efficiently and can afford to buy things in greater quantities and uh, create things in greater quantities. Employees can coordinate work within the function and top management can easily direct activities. So a lot of advantages there. Some disadvantages, departments may not communicate well. That is, it creates silos. So if I've got this department over here and that department over here and this department over here, you create these things called silos, which is where we live on this island and we don't always talk to each other very well, you know, because we're doing our thing and you're doing your thing. You're over here and I'm over there. So that creates these communication barriers that can happen. Employees may identify with their department's goals rather than the organization's. The company's response to external change may be slow. People may not be trained to take different managerial responsibilities. Instead, they become specialists. Department members may engage in groupthink and may need to meet outside input. What is groupthink? Have you guys heard that term before? What is groupthink? <clears throat> So, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a movie called 12 Angry Men they showed on this example. And the story is that 11 of the men want to convict this person of murder, and it's, it's a death penalty. And there's only one person that says, I don't know if this guy did it or not, you know. And so the, the men are, you know, they're fighting amongst themselves, and the 11 of them are just giving this guy a hard time, browbeating him, change your vote. And he eventually talked it out and explained to other guys that this guy he thinks is innocent and he actually was innocent he didn't deserve the death penalty 
Uh, but the point being is that groupthink is that when somebody throws out an idea and people are not engaged, they'll quickly just adopt any idea just to be done with it and move on, you know. And so I wish my family would come to groupthink more often when it comes to deciding what to eat for supper because it's usually I want this and I want that and I want this, you know. So, All right, so I'm looking at alternative ways to departmentalize. You could do it by product. So this department makes this product and that department makes that product. By function, here's accounting, here's marketing, here's sales. <clears throat> by customer group, here's the North Carolina sales group, South Carolina sales group. By geographic location, same example. By process, we do this type of work over here and that type of work over there. Some firms use a combination of departmentalization techniques to create hybrid forms. And so this is one example. Marketing manager, they got uh, trade books, college texts, and technical books. That's by product, different types of books. And then you've got by function, the president, you got production, marketing, finance, human resources, and accounting. And so any questions about any of that? I know there's a lot to cover in a quick amount of time. All right, keep in mind chapter seven quizzes due tonight. Um, and we'll finish chapter eight on Thursday. Uh, be thinking about your SWOT analysis. And uh, if you have your essay physical form, just drop that off on the table on the way out. I'll take that and I'll get that back to you in short order. All right, guys, I'll see you Thursday. Appreciate you.